Hello and welcome to The Dirt. As you surely know by now, on this show, we discuss all things related to the environment and environmental justice, usually with a focus on North Carolina. We are broadcasting for now from historic WSHA 88.9 FM in downtown Raleigh. This may be our last broadcast from this location, which is very sad. Uh, but look to the Dirt FM on Twitter. Uh, we've got our eye on a new home and check there for updates and we'll keep you apprised of exactly what's happening on that front. In studio with me today is Upper Noose River Keeper Matthew Starr, who has finally agreed to come on the show. Uh, thank you for being here, Matthew. <laughs> Uh, I love this is my first time. I'm, yeah, I'm did really you have excited. Any, any trouble finding the studio? <laughs> no. Good. Good. So you are the Upper News Riverkeeper for listeners who uh, are not acquainted with who you might be. Um, as I understand it, that's kind of like the Lorax of the river. Would that be accurate? Um, yeah. Sure. But okay. a little it more, is. No, let me tell you. It is. strong and forceful. Give, give us a fun News River fact. Um. The Noose River, when it comes out of Falls Lake Dam, you can walk across it. It's not very wide and pretty shallow most of the time. And in Newburn, where it empties into the Pamlico Sound, you can barely see across it. So the Noose River changes a lot throughout its 248-mile journey east. Fascinating. Okay. So the show is called The Dirt. I think it's time to dig into some stories here. Uh, Coming up on the show, we've got an interview with a landowner who is impacted by a new fracked gas pipeline proposal. We'll talk about that. Uh, I want to remind everybody that it has now been about a year, a little over a year, since we all collectively began learning about the chemical dumping of Gen X. A year already? Crazy. Wow. Uh, And other emerging contaminants into the Cape Fear River. And to mark the anniversary, Kimmore's officials interacted with the public for the first time. Uh, they hosted a, a town hall-style event to answer questions from folks impacted by decades of chemical dumping pollution, and we were there. It did not go well, uh, to say the least. I'll give you the whole rundown here shortly. In the meantime, we are still in the middle of a legislative session uh, we are expecting it to end this week. My fingers are crossed. How about Hopefully, yours? Yes. Yeah. The longer they're there, the more damage they do. That's basically the theory we're working with. So a lot has been happening in just kind of the past 24 hours. And I want to touch on some of it. First and foremost is the North Carolina Farm Act, which is Senate Bill 711. Uh, a couple of sections in this bill have been the subject of quite a bit of commentary as it's made its way rapidly through the legislative process. A lot of that commentary has come in the form of lawmakers and kind of good government advocates bemoaning the fact that it's been fast-tracked. And some of the debate was around whether whether or not we should call milk milk. What is milk? Um, Is coconut milk milk? Is milk of magnesia milk? Uh, These are all actual questions that have been raised in our legislative body. Actual debate. Um, bottom line is it needs hooves. (laughs) If it doesn't come from an animal with hooves, it is not milk in the eyes of the North Carolina General Assembly. But I think the most contentious part of this bill was Section 10, uh, which would 
limit the ability of neighbors of these big industrial uh, agriculture operations to sue for nuisances created by those operations like pests, smells, uh, all that kind of fecal bacteria in your home. Sure. That too. So in kind of that's made its way through the legislature. It passed both houses and went to the governor. And last night the governor vetoed it. Uh, But before that happened, there were two kind of competing events. I won't say they were competing, but two events um, taking place at the legislature yesterday. One was a, uh, a huge event paid for by ag lobbyists. Um, Port Council, Farm Bureau. North Carolina Farm Families, all these kind of groups. And um, another event uh, took place inside the legislative building. It was full of community members who live next to these farms, whose voices have not been heard in the factories. way that... Yes. These are not mom and pop operated farms these they're are not. factories they're not they're, they're they're massive factories tens of thousands of hogs in some cases and so the people that live next to them came up to, to try to have their voices heard um to the media to the people to the legislators who are voting on this to the governor who they were hoping would veto the bill we've got a little bit of sound from the event that uh they put on and i'll play it for you now No one wants to live near a hog confinement operation. Odors arising from farming operations can give rise to a private nuisance, even in predominantly agricultural areas. And the fact that a residence in a rural area does not require excessive abuse so as to destroy the ability of other people around them to live and enjoy their home. North Carolina citizens who acquire homes invest their life savings to raise their families in comfort and in peace and enjoyment. Courts have put the rights together for property rights. As a fundamental ownership of property, it includes the right to possess and exclude others, to use and enjoy your land, and to dispose of your property. The purpose of nuisance laws is to protect that use and enjoyment of people's property. Parties must use their own property in a manner that will not interfere with their neighbors. And parties may sue for damages and to stop a nuisance whenever it is injurious to health, indecent or unreasonably offensive to the senses, or obstructs the free use of property. Where I live, I live a quarter quarter of a mile from hog houses. And when I get up in the morning time, the smell is so bad that, you know, you don't know what to do about it. It's nothing I can do about it. But it, say last Friday, the temperature, humidity was so hot that the people that had the hog houses, they were spraying. And with the temperature of him spraying, the, the air smelled like ammonia well, that would burn your eyes and all. And you cannot stand in your yard or work in your yard. And that's wrong. And where I live, I can stand on my deck and take pictures of the hog trucks, the dead trucks coming by. I can't even cook out in my yard. We used to have family gatherings, family uh, cookouts. No, we can't do it anymore because of the flies, because of the bugs, the buzzers, and all this here. And it's wrong. The water that I have, and I paid so much to put it down, I have to buy a bottle of water to drink. And that's wrong. So someone needs to do something about this. 
Good afternoon, everybody. Um, as Jamie already said, I'm Naima Muhammad, co-director, community organizer with the North Carolina Environmental Justice Network. And for nearly two decades, we, the North Carolina uh, Environmental Justice Network have worked with communities living with these industrialized animals. Everybody keeps saying farm. We don't call that farming. Uh, I grew up with farming, and the farming that I saw did not look like what we see now. And so I always refer to them as operations. Um, what I just want to do is what you've heard from people today about what their experiences are, you know, I sure hope it's not taken lightly. Um, you know, the people don't have clean air, clean water, can't come outside, can't do their family gatherings. They are taking on expenses that they had not intended to be taken on in order to continue living where they live. Um, and then, I, you know, as I was thinking about this bill and the fact that our legislators, the people that we voted in, are siding with industry, I just said this is shameful. I mean, it's truly shameful, and I think that these legislators that's favoring this bill, um, I certainly hope they're not getting in the sleep at night, which they probably are because they probably don't even feel bad about it. But, um, you know, the fact that they can be bought off in the manner that they are being bought off uh, is disgraceful to North Carolina, and it's disgraceful to us as voters that we put these kind of people in office that come up here to do the things that they're doing to us. Last year it was 467. This year we got 711. Who knows what they're going to do next? But the fact that they can allow corporations to take precedence over the people that brought them here is just shameful. And I think that everybody, all the people that travel here today, you know, why should they have to take time away from their daily routines, take off their jobs, you know, do, just leave home, to address something that should never be happening in the first place. And we want to ask the legislators that did support, that does support this bill to please not override the governor's veto, you know, to understand that everybody have a right to clean air and clean water. Everybody have a right to enjoy their property. People invest their lives in where they live. Um, you know, many of, we're talking about people living in poor communities, uh, poverty-written communities, low-income communities, and the little bit that we do have, and when we invested in our homes, we we did that with the hopes that we were going to be able to enjoy that property, have something that we can leave for our children or grandchildren. Our children are leaving home. They're leaving home because there's nothing there but animals, and they see no investment or no way that they could gain any kind of um, stable life living in communities like the ones we're having to deal with because of environmental racism. And so we just ask these legislators, if they have children and grandchildren, to think about what they do for their children and grandchildren and why don't they fit, see that everybody have a right to be able to leave their children something worth having. And uh, I'm going to be quiet because I'm getting ready to go on the terror. Thank y'all. <laughs> So, so that first voice that you heard was Rick Glazier. He is the uh, a former legislator and the current executive director of the North Carolina Justice Center. And uh, the second voice there was a property owner, 
down in Duplin County. Her name is Pamela McMillan, and um, she introduced uh, herself, but Naima Muhammad, who is the co-director of the Environmental Justice Network, was that final voice that you heard. There were several other folks uh, who came up to speak, and there were many, many more who made the trip from eastern North Carolina to uh, come up and oppose this bill, to encourage the governor to veto it, and to encourage legislators that if a veto comes, uh, sustain it, do not override a veto. And so what we've seen uh, is that the uh, the governor has given an override to 7-Eleven. And uh, I should just note that, uh, you know, this, this, this all comes in response to a kind of sustained attack uh, on neighbors of these hog operations. Like uh, Ms. Mohammed mentioned, we had 467 last year. And uh, this year, we've got this bill. In the meantime, in April, a jury hearing the first of the kind of ongoing lawsuits awarded neighbors of these operations a $50 million judgment against Smithfield Foods. And I think it's important to emphasize that the folks that came up from Eastern North Carolina, from Duplin, Sampson counties, they're not against the farmers. They're not fighting farmers. They're not suing farmers. They're suing a multi-billion dollar global corporation based out of Hong Kong called Smithfield. And that's the entity that is the bad actor in, in, in all of this here. And that's and, the entity that can, a, that can afford financially to fix the problem. Absolutely. And there are fixes to the problem. Yes. We've seen in we've seen in other parts of the world. We've seen even here in the United States and Missouri, people who are implementing different kinds of technologies to store hog waste uh, and other things that that would mitigate the nuisances uh, that are impacting people in these communities. People who, by the way, are disproportionately people of color, people who are native people um, and in low wealth communities as well. But if you listen to the proponents of this bill, and particularly Section 10 in the North Carolina legislature, I'm talking about Senator Bryn Jackson, uh, Representative Jimmy Dixon, um, many others, C- Commissioner Troxler, even not part of the legislature, but you know they're 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 putting forward this kind of folksy image, this romanticized image of a farmer that is under attack, and it it just isn't. It isn't accurate. Um, they, they are suggesting that these huge hog house operations are the kinds of things that have been happening in North Carolina for decades and decades, you know, going back generations, which is not the case. Um, these are not traditional practices. How far back does no, this go? I mean, it's, it's, it, like, like we've said, this isn't someone on 100 acres with you know, 50 hogs or, or whatever. This isn't the, the, the Marlboro man is not out riding the fence or riding a horse, mending the fence. These are factory operations with tens of thousands, hundreds of animals throughout, <clears throat> excuse me, these counties. And all the ways to come with yeah. it. Yeah. And, you know, the other thing that legislators are saying is, oh, well, you know, if we don't protect Smithfield with everything we've got, they're going to leave North Carolina they're and they're going to leave economic deficit. No, of course they're not going anywhere. You know why they're not going anywhere? They just invested yeah. $100 million on the world's largest pork processing plant over in Tar Heel. So, you know, they're not about to just leave that behind. No, people not can calm up. down. And, and it's not that people are not grateful for food or not. You know, I keep hearing this narrative that 
that they that these operators of these factory facilities should be shielded from from any responsibility that their practices may cause on the environment or on nearby communities simply because they provide food well we can have food without spraying waste it's not either communities. or it's not no, it's not it's, either or and we can have both we absolutely can have both can do it the right way so the governor has vetoed 711 it as i understand it uh, is calendared in the legislature for an override vote Wednesday. okay so tomorrow they may be taking this up honestly you never know uh, this will all depend on whether or not they've got the votes at any given moment so they could move it up they could push it back they could delay and not have a vote on it at all so you know right now we're expecting them to vote on an override tomorrow and I think it could be a very close vote. I don't yeah. know what you're hearing. But. Same. So so this is one of the few chances where you can pick up a phone, make a one-minute phone call, and tell your representative, tell your senator to sustain the veto, uphold the veto, protect our environment, protect our communities. This is something that everyone listening should do. All right. Well, I want to thank Conservation Network's Michael Linto for helping to put that sound package together Uh, we are headed to a break you are listening to the dirt on wsha fm with expanded services on 1021 in rocky mounts and 1023 in fayetteville north carolina for now check out the dirt fm on soundcloud and search for us on itunes as well we'll be right back welcome back to the dirt i want to talk for a moment about the value of civility. And many of you have probably read about the different ways in which members of the Trump administration have been interrupted while dining out in recent days. There have been pundits and politicians on the left and the right who are expressing opinions about this, but I've been thinking particularly of some mainstream liberal leaders like Senator Chuck Schumer, uh, ex-Obama guys like Arnie Duncan and David Axelrod, to a certain degree even you know, pundits, CNN's Chris Eliza, the editorial board of the Washington Post, the list goes on. Folks who are chiding the people involved in these mild confrontations, calling for a return to, quote, civility in political discourse. And it's these, these pearl-clutching calls for calm and quiet discourse that remind me of some similar scolding I witnessed recently. And I think it's an interesting parallel. So two weeks ago, some members of the Kimor's Chemical Company executive team held a town hall in rural North Carolina. These guys have been putting chemicals into the drinking water sources of hundreds of thousands of people for decades. And for the first time, they were facing the people whose water they've been brazenly contaminating. Here is how they got this meeting underway. We ask that you be respectful of each other in this facility this evening and that remind you that anyone using profanity or being disruptive will be asked to leave the, the event this evening. Please be respectful. Be civil, for gosh sakes. How civil can we expect a person to be when faced with threats to their family's health or safety. 
I'll get to more details about this event in a second, but I want to give everyone a recap because this month has officially been a year since the chemical Gen X produced by Kim Moore's made its way into the popular lexicon here in North Carolina, uh, thanks in no small part to the great journalism out of the Wilmington Star News. Now, Gen X is a perfluorinated compound, which is a fancy name for a family of chemicals used in a lot of waterproof or water-resistant products. Teflon is an example. And the family of compounds has been called emerging contaminants or persistent chemicals because they don't break down. We've been putting them into the ecosystem now for decades, and they'll never be gone. They'll be in the Earth's water and soil in plant and animal tissue long after humans have disappeared from the planet. And these kinds of compounds can be very harmful. Gen X's molecular cousins have proven very dangerous to human health, and if animal studies related to Gen X are to be believed, Gen X itself might be a cause of cancer. It might be a hormone disruptor. Much more. There's a lot we don't know about it yet. What we know isn't great. So its safety is in serious doubt, which made the discovery last year of Gen X in the city of Wilmington's treated drinking water extremely troubling. Researchers found Gen X, and they also found a cocktail of other chemical compounds in the Cape Fear River, the rivers where Wilmington pulls its drinking water. And from there, it was determined this stuff was being discharged by a newish company named Kimors from an industrial site upriver near Fayetteville. Now, side note, Kimors is a recent 2013 spinoff from DuPont, which is now known as Dow DuPont after a merger with Dow Chemicals. So that company is now the world's largest chemical company. God only knows what they're doing right now, but we're focused on Kimors for the time being. So when this news broke last summer, Kimors officials told local leaders in Wilmington candidly that Gen X had been discharged from their facility into the river since probably about 1980. They suggested it was perfectly legal to do it, and they largely left it at that. They were absent from most of the community meetings and legislative hearings and news investigations that would emerge in the weeks and months afterward. Now, the Department of Environmental Quality has slowly but steadily ratcheted up enforcement actions against the company, which is no longer permitted to discharge processed wastewater containing Gen X into the Cape Fear. But grassroots organizations and local politicians along the Cape Fear River are calling for Governor Cooper to shut Kimworth down altogether. And questions remain about what other chemicals the company may have been discharging and for how long. And of course, everyone's left wondering why, after DuPont faced lawsuits in the wake of cancer, birth defects, and other health concerns related to the dumping of Gen X's chemical cousin C8 into the Ohio River, why didn't Kim Wars, with that knowledge, take more precautions and act with more transparency when exposing communities to their chemicals? As I said, the company has until very recently remained almost entirely silent through all this, with the exception of the CEO, Mike Vergnano, who mentioned in an interview with CNBC a few months ago that the company's willful water contamination was just a permitting issue down in North Carolina. 
Now, by the way, this guy Vergnano, he was with DuPont since 1980. So he was at DuPont while DuPont was giving people cancer and putting farmers out of business by poisoning the Ohio River with C8. That means Vergnano was with DuPont while DuPont was covering up an internal study in which they discovered the company's own employees were bearing children with similar unusual birth defects and did nothing about it. And do you know what Vergnano does when he's not managing Kimors? It's interesting. He's the chair of the board of directors at the National Safety Council. Now, if you don't know what the National Safety Council is, it's a big nonprofit organization. Their mission is the elimination of, quote, preventable deaths at work, in home, in communities, and on the road through leadership, research, education, and advocacy. NSC advances this mission by engaging businesses, government agencies, elected officials, and the public to help prevent the fourth leading cause of death in the United States, preventable injuries. It's a great mission. Preventable injuries. The guy whose company has been dumping chemicals into your drinking water sources for 30 years is the chair of an organization's board whose mission is safety and preventing people from getting hurt. I have to say, I don't know why the National Safety Council would want to be associated with this guy. I think it hurts their mission. And by the way, June is National Safety Month. So the NSC has a whole campaign uh, going on right now. But, but the guy leading the board at the National Safety Council doesn't seem to represent themes of safety very well. North Carolina Policy Watch reported in May, go look this up, it's, it's more fantastic journalism from Lisa Sorg. They reported in May that, that the Kimwars plant in Fayetteville has had serious safety issues. Now, this isn't pollution being discharged, this is worker safety. She uncovered some documents from the Department of Labor showing dangerous conditions for workers there. But the man at the top of the company responsible for this is the head of the National Safety Council's Board of Directors? Y'all might want to rethink that one. I don't know. By the way, just for fun, I looked up Vergnano's compensation package. Uh, he made $9.8 million from Kim Wars in total compensation in 2017. So do with that what you will. Like I said, Kim Wars has been mostly silent about the chemicals they've been dumping into the river until a couple of weeks ago. And this is what brings me back to questions of civility. Kim Wars announced they were hosting this town hall event in which Kim Wars officials would be available to speak with and answer questions to the public in an effort to be transparent, etc., etc., which sounds great. It sounds very civil. But as soon as I read the location of this event, I got skeptical. You know, they held it in St. Paul's, North Carolina, down in Robinson County, at a church in the middle of nothing. It was a good hike from Fayetteville, where folks are living with contaminated groundwater wells in the area of the Fayetteville worksite. And it was a full day trip from Wilmington, where all those hundreds of thousands of people have had contaminated drinking water. It's hard for people to get there. 
Now, folks showed up anyhow. There were probably a hundred or so people who, who were able to make that trip, hoping to get answers, desperate for answers. The media showed up, and they were told at the door that cameras would not be allowed inside, so they were upset. And inside, Kimor's officials told the public to please be respectful. Even as they ignored or dismissed legitimate questions people posed about the safety of their water, about the company's primary motivations. Kimura's representative said that they were holding tonight's meeting in St. Paul's for the sake of transparency, but there was absolutely nothing transparent about tonight's meeting. From their choice of a private location where they could call the shots to not letting TV cameras inside, it was clear the Kimura's representatives had no intention of being transparent. More than 100 people showed up and almost all left, saying it was a complete waste of their time. Jonathan Webb didn't even make it to the end of the meeting. He was kicked out for speaking out and demanding answers to his questions. It's nonsense. This is evil. This should have never taken place in the house of God. This discussion, this meeting should have never happened here. They're just, they're evil. It's all about the God Almighty dollar. Others like Michael Waters left early on their own will. I can't listen to lies anymore. He says he used to think that we could work hand in hand with Comores to fix the problem. After tonight's meeting, he said he wants them shut down. This is a publicity stunt. Comores representatives made the audience submit questions by paper and continually cut off anyone who tried to speak out. Their moderator sifted through those questions and summarized to them before asking Comores reps for answers. The way they had us to ask questions, and they picked the questions out because I, I asked the question, but it didn't get answered. So they picked the questions out that they wanted, that they thought they could have the answers to. The ones that they didn't know they couldn't answer, they didn't pick those out. Their answer to almost every question, no matter what it was, is that Gen X doesn't pose a risk to human health, yet they also kept repeating that their $100 million fix would take care of it. Media was also told that we could only interview Comores representatives if we were asking specifically about what they were presenting. When we tried to ask the real questions, we were shut down. Speed up this process, and I don't. Sorry. Okay. 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 Can we? We're going to stick to what he's talking okay. about. Okay. Okay. But those who came out demanding answers tonight left saying they weren't fooled. They don't want you to see what's really happening. You know, this this is insane. I also asked a Comores media representative when they will be holding a meeting in Wilmington so that area residents can demand answers to their questions. I was just told that they're exploring all of their options. When I asked for clarification as to what that meant, she just said it again. They're exploring all of their options. Reporting in St. Paul's, I'm Alex Garino. One of the gentlemen Alex spoke with was demanding answers about the impact Kim Wars' chemical pollution has had on his home's property value. As he pressed Kimor's plant manager, Brian Long, for answers, law enforcement arrived to escort him outside at the company's request. We are fixing this issue, this set of issues, for the short term and for the long term. We're installing and we'll spend and we'll invest over $100 million in our plant site. And it will, and it will, and it will, it will make, and it will get the Gen X and the other PFAS, PFAS compounds out of the air and it will get it out of the water. And I think that will be good for our community. 
Residents gathered outside after the event, and many of them expressed frustration at the lack of clear information from Kimors and left feeling as though they were the subjects of an experiment. You know, and the other thing that really bothered me terribly bad was the fact that I have seen on our website so many, virtually hundreds of internal emails and memos and jotted letters where they, their own scientists were saying, this is cancerous. Yeah. Now I understand animals are getting it, but they're not saying anything about humans. But we got people all around us dying with cancer all We are the study. Yeah, we we're the, the guinea bad. pigs. We're we the guinea the pigs. That sentiment truly gets to the heart of the issue of corporate chemical dumping. There is something fundamentally wrong with a system that allows a company to dump chemicals into human drinking water sources without knowing whether or not it's safe. The burden in America today is on the consumers, on families, young children, household pets, to demonstrate the chemical is dangerous to public health before anyone will be told to stop putting it into the water. Often, demonstrating this danger requires getting sick or dying. How civil. You are listening to The Dirt. We are headed into the final segment of the show today, so thank you for sticking with us. Matthew Starr, Upper News Riverkeeper, is here in studio with us here in WSHA's wonderful, lovely space for probably the last time. Say goodbye, Matthew. It's a big bummer. It is. Uh, Many of you have probably followed the Atlantic Coast Pipeline Saga. Matthew, I know you have down here in North Carolina. It uh, is a project that is, I believe, now received all its permit approvals from the Cooper administration uh, I think so, some regulations are, are that protect migratory birds are delaying some some of the tree cutting necessary to begin full construction. But in a few months, November-ish, December-ish, probably, it'll be moving forward in full steam. Uh, there was a story yesterday in the Richmond Times-Dispatch up in Virginia that noted a pair of landowners and their friends and allies there are setting up an encampment on their property in Bath County, Virginia, which is kind of in the heart of the Washington and Jefferson National Forest and directly in the path of the Atlantic Coast Pipeline when it begins construction there. Uh, They're trying to stop it from destroying the kind of old growth forest there. They've got trees that are over 300 years old in this area that they're trying to protect. And I expect we're going to see more of that kind of thing in Virginia and West Virginia and in North Carolina as this project begins to move forward. People who are, you know, impacted by this, they want to protect the habitat, they want to protect their property, and, you know, they're trying to stand in the way uh, of this of this really terrible idea of a pipeline. Of Disastrous, a yes. Uh, but today I want to talk about a different pipeline project. Yes, there's another one. It's called the Mountain Valley Pipeline. 
and Emily Sutton, the Hall River Keeper, and Perry Slade, who is a landowner impacted by this potential pipeline project, joined me to talk about what the MVP proposal is, uh, why it could be dangerous, and what North Carolina officials that they've met with are saying about it. So I'll play our conversation for you now. Emily, Perry, thank you for joining me. Uh, Emily, let me start with the basics here because I, I don't think that most folks are familiar with MVP yet. So tell me what the Mountain Valley Pipeline is and what the Southgate Extension is, just in basic terms. Sure. So the Mountain Valley Pipeline main line is in Virginia and West Virginia and Pennsylvania. It's bringing fracked gas from uh, Pennsylvania down to an end point in Pennsylvania County, Virginia. And so that's a 300-mile pipeline. The Mountain Valley Southgate extension has been extended from Pennsylvania County in Virginia through North Carolina. So it's 70 miles running through Rockingham and Alamance County. And it's ending at an end point in Graham, which connects to PSNC. And that's just a proposal at this point, right? It's a proposal, right. Um, They've pre-filed for FERC documents, but they haven't officially submitted any permits yet. So there have been a couple of kind of informational public meetings. Uh, I understand this week, yesterday, there were a couple. I think there's one coming up tonight in Reedsville. Yesterday, they were in Burlington, uh, put on by, I think, MVP Southgate and the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, FERC. Um, Were either of y'all at any of those meetings? We were both at the meeting last night. Okay, great. Perry, tell me a little bit about what that was like. Are are people Um, getting balanced and accurate information at these things? What was it? was it like? Well, we thought uh, probably one of the most inaccurate statements of the night, because we're certainly very concerned about the safety of the pipeline. Um, and one of the MVP um, representatives told my husband, he said, oh, you have nothing to worry about. Our pipes don't leak. <laughs> really? So I, I, do, I do not find that to be very accurate information when I can look up an explosion in a number of states just in the last few weeks. Well, so that leads me to, you know, this question uh, for, for, you know, what, what are the dangers that we're looking at here with, with this pipeline? I mean, is it habitat loss, gas explosions, hits to property value, environmental justice impacts, you know, as, as a landowner, Perry, in the area, what, what worries you most about this whole proposal? Well, all of the above. I feel like they're very dangerous. I live on a family farm that has been in my family for hundreds of years. I'm literally the eighth generation to live here. Um, It wants to come across our working hay farm through acres and acres. I feel like we've been targeted because we are a wide open farm and they wouldn't have to remove trees. They want to come right between our houses where all our septic lines and power lines and phone lines and everything are. They want to go through our driveway. Um, We just feel like they're infringing on our rights, not to mention how dangerous it is. We have a rock quarry about 
four to five miles down the road and they want to go into our neighbor's yards down there that are within feet of that rock quarry and then they're going to tell us that the land is not going to shift when we know our neighbors have to straighten the pictures on their walls every day from the explosion. Wow. And what are your neighbors thinking about this? Are other people in the oh, community? They're right, oh, they're all right with us. We're all fighting this as hard as we can go. You know, and I'm, I've actually contacted some um, corporate people in our community, getting no support there. You know, last week I was told, Perry, you might as well accept it's coming. Just make sure they pay you well for your land. My, my land has no price tag on it. It, it can, you could never pay me enough for what this farm means to me. Yeah, I understand that. It's been in your family for so long. That's, that's priceless, truly. Have you received an offer from MVP or anything like that? Have they reached out to you trying to, to get you to sell? No, we're, I don't think they're anywhere that far along. They keep telling us that the um, route is not determined. It's just a proposed route yet they had all these maps set up last night to show you where it's supposed to go. Um, and we had already had one of those um, through email and so knew it was coming straight across our farm. Wow. Uh, Emily, so, what, what are some of the environmental implications with this project? So there are at least 81 stream crossings in that original document that they've put out. Um, so far, it's not crossing the main stem of the Haw, but it would cross a lot of the tributary streams that run directly adjacent to it. They're, they would be running it pretty close to the east side of the river. And so it's a lot of tributaries that are feeding the main stem of the Haw um, just a couple yards in some cases. So it's cutting through in between a reservoir and a wetland on one stream and then there's a couple um, endangered species in some of the other streams and in this basin the the creek banks are so rocky that the process for laying that pipe they would have to dam up both sides upstream and downstream and flow the water around that and so since the buffers are so steep in some cases it would have to clear the buffers and flatten it so it has access to the floodplain. And then drilling down into that creek bank or into the creek bed to lay the pipes, it involves drilling in with these hydraulic drills that they have to cover with a lot of volatile organic chemicals. And that contaminates water supply. I mean, these are headwater streams in the Haw River Basin. And so there's a lot of drinking water users pulling from the Haw and from Jordan Lake and the Cape Fear. So it affects drinking water users, but also habitat. It's gonna destroy all the habitat around where those stream crossings are because of the dams. And then when they release the dams, it will release huge levels of sediment and it'll just drown those aquatic habitats and bring nutrients and heavy metals into the water as well. So I know on, um, you know, kind of the, more eastern part of the state. We've got the Atlantic Coast Pipeline. We've talked about that on the show a little bit. And the Endangered Species Act may be a tool um, that is used in the Noose River Basin to affect delay construction of the pipeline there. It's it's probably too early 
um, at this point to, to say, but do you expect that that might be a tool that y'all could use to, to fight back against the pipeline in your neck of the woods? Absolutely. I mean, we're going to use every tool that we can. So, um, yeah, that's one of them. And there's also a lot of historic uh, towns along this route. So it's cutting directly adjacent, parallel to the river. And there's a lot of historic mill towns that are here that the proposed route would cut directly through. And so that's another fight that we'll be fighting. So tools are good. Allies are also good if they're in positions of power. I understand y'all met with North Carolina Attorney General Josh Stein about this. Is that right? We met with his team. So we met with Blake Thomas and um, some of the consumer protection folks in the office. So what are their what's their take on this proposal? Where do you where do you think they're standing right now? Or are y'all satisfied with it? I'll let Perry answer that one. Um, our meeting was a lot about landowner impacts and the way that the surveyors have really been mistreating and deceiving the landowners. Um, I felt very positive when we left. I felt like they listened to us. They took notes and asked lots and lots of questions. Um, so I do feel like they will do some investigation. Um, we have asked for a follow-up meeting um, and they assured us we could have that. Um, and I have to admit, we hope at some point to actually meet with the Attorney General himself. Um, we want to get complaints into their office so that they hear from others and not just those of us that went. Um, and we hope that next time we go to take more and different landowners with us so that they can hear everybody's story. And that's always hugely important. And I'll use that opportunity to point out that, uh, you know, this pipeline is also going to be constructed through portions of the state um, with high uh, populations of the Okanichi Band of Saponi Nation. So just like the Atlantic Coast Pipeline goes through counties heavy with indigenous populations, the same thing could be happening here with the Southgate Extension. Um, Perry, is there any word on what the Cooper administration's stance is on this pipeline? Not that I'm aware of. Emily may know more of that than I do. We haven't heard anything uh, conclusive about how they stand on this, but we did meet with Jeremy Tarr and some senior, senior leadership at DEQ early on and let them know all of our concerns as far as environmental concerns and economic impacts and impacts to property owners. Well, let's so they've been made aware. Okay. So what's uh, what's next? What, what's the next deadline? Where does this go from here? So right now we're working with county level government and we're um, writing resolutions for commissioners to sign to oppose the pipeline. There are a couple permits that will depend on county level, um, but it's also a great optic for both counties to come out against it when it does get to the state level. So we've been meeting with, well, organizing landowners is the number one goal right now. Um, a lot of landowners that have been contacted by surveyors, they've been delivered a mailing that their land is along the proposed route, but this mailing looks like junk mail. And so a lot of people have thrown it away 
and don't even realize that they're along the proposed route. So we've since got the list of people who have been contacted. I'm sending information to them that says that they do have rights. They don't have to allow surveyors on their land. Um, and then we're working with county government to kind of educate them and let them know that this is not a done deal. And I will add to that that um, I have been around to some of our neighbors where I know the surveyors have been in their communities, and I was given a uh, privilege to see that list last night, and my family and I have already this morning made a list of people we know on that list and plan to contact today. That's fantastic. So how can, how can other folks get involved or, um, you know, where can they go for more information on the pipeline? Uh, we have a website called nomvpsouthgate.org. And um, then the landowners have organized a Facebook group as well as we have a lot of resources on our own website at hawriver.org. So there's information about the pipelines, about the dangers of pipelines, but there's also official documents of how to file a complaint with the Attorney General's office, how to submit comments, to the FERC petitions. Um, so there's a lot of resources there for people to figure out how to get involved and if they are in, in the affected communities, what steps they can take. Because we're organizing public meetings on our own um, pretty regularly. So I think our next meeting will be July 10th in Alamance County. And that's at Alamance County Community College. But all that information will be kept up on the website. And that's just community members. It's not put on by MVP. Fantastic. And, and, we've, and we've been working as landowners. Um, you know, we've had like sign painting parties to paint signs to put out in the community. Um, we have an outreach group, uh, you know, like a subcommittee. We're talking to people. Um, I mean, my niece actually stood up in our church a couple of weeks ago and let our whole church congregation know what was going on in their community and was just astounded at the number of people that approached her after church that knew, had known nothing about it. And we all live in this community together because we're just a little local country church. And we were, we couldn't believe how many people were saying, tell me more. I hadn't heard about this. Wow. Well, you're doing the right thing and spreading the word. And I think it sounds like y'all are doing everything the right way so far. So hopefully people learn more about this as the process goes on and, you know, folks can do something about it. But I, uh, I appreciate you both joining me today. It was great to talk to you. Thanks for telling us about this, this pipeline. Thank you. Thanks, Brian. And thank you again to Emily and Perry for uh, that conversation. It was fantastic. There's been a lot of heavy topics of conversation on the show today, Matthew. Yes. Like some serious stuff. I mean, there's serious stuff happening. It's affecting people's lives. It's affecting their property. It's affecting their well-being. And not to mention our environment. But being bombarded by all of this negative experience is also uh, impacting people's well-being. So I want to take the last couple minutes we have on our broadcast to end on a lighter note. Um, a couple of days ago, reported in the News and Observer, is a story about how uh, 200 turtles were admitted over the winter to the North Carolina Aquarium's Sea Turtle Assistance and Rehab Center on Roanoke Island, 
where they were treated for cold stunning. Cold stunning is a hypothermia-like condition that occurs when water temperatures drop rapidly and turtles don't have time to get back out to the Gulf Stream. Well, that's not the good news. That was (laughs) the bad part of the news. Nine of those sea turtles have been released and they are back in the water. We've got five green sea turtles, three Kemp's Ridley, and a 275-pound loggerhead who paddled back into their natural environment uh, in a release on the Cape Hatteras National Seashore a couple of days ago. There was a huge crowd. They were cheering. Their turtles are free. They're better. They're healthy. They're swimming around there free. You can go about your day today and think about those adorable, cute little turtles and how they are healthy now, and they're swimming around in the ocean for the first time in months, and they're happy. They are cute. That's for sure. And not just sea turtles. There's another non-animal entity that is healthy and free, and that is the Noose River. Milberty Dam is for, for a certain stretch of it is healthy. <laughs> well, yes, yeah, yeah. true. Milberty um, Dam is gone, and it's been gone now for a minute. Yeah. So things are looking how? Awesome. Um, so Milberty Dam has been replaced by Milberty Falls. It, it, I take my kids out there. If you live in the greater Raleigh area, you want a cool thing literally and figuratively to go do and we, um, we need that recently yes and then it's, it's a great escape you can get out there um huge flat rocks that you can just sit down um my son was out there sliding down them like a little nature slide um as long as the water is not too high it's it's a great place to go visit go play get it get an escape um it's right off the greenway you can easily act ex- access it um and there's even a place to have a little picnic so get out there and have some fun you can go sit on these big flat rocks on the river listen to the river gushing close your eyes think about the sea turtles who are free a few hundred miles away swimming in the ocean in the warm gulf stream hopefully by now yeah just be at peace with yourself and the world before you have to get back to reality get back to confronting all of this stuff so well we are officially out of time as always uh, you can continue to listen to the show on itunes and on soundcloud uh, by searching for the dirt or the dirt fm on soundcloud and please check the dirt fm on twitter uh, because while this is our last time here at wsha it is not the last broadcast of the dirt we will be continuing and check on our twitter uh, page for more information about where you can access the show and where you can listen to the show on the radio in the future. I want to thank WSHA, Jessica Graham, our producer, so much, Nicole Giami, so much, um, Derek Cooper, everybody who's been here that has helped make this show a a success, at least in our minds. I think it's been a great success, and it's definitely been fun doing it. Uh, I'm going to miss the studio and everybody here. Everybody here is fantastic. Thank you, thank you, thank you for helping us put this show on. It's truly appreciated, and I hope that the community in Raleigh has gotten something out of it over the course uh, of the past year. So with that, I'm going to go ahead and say goodbye. Say goodbye, Matthew. Goodbye.